Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And Ann, we've had quite the busy week. We knew that there was going to be a lot going on this week with AFI Fest happening, with Doc NYC happening. We didn't know that with new allegations about Kevin Spacey, Ridley Scott was just going to cut him out of his movie, All the Money in the World, and just reshoot the whole thing with uh, Christopher Plummer and not change the December release date for the movie. So that's been a pretty crazy story. And I guess what's interesting yep, for so- us to talk about here is, like, wh- why? why? Why do this to yourself? Okay. So basically, you have a, a big studio uh, with a big investment. They've spent hundreds That's Sony. of million dollars on this, you know, over well over $100 million on this thing. And they have a, uh, I'm just curious what the, what the reported budget really is. Um, they, so all, basically, they're protecting their investment and they're being stubborn. So the question that everyone's asking, if it weren't Ridley Scott, um, would, it would be very unlikely that, that, that anyone would let this happen. They just but they dump the movie. trust him. No, they wouldn't dump the movie. They would push it back. They would, they would try. But there is no good scenario here. You, it's tainted. It has Kevin Spacey in it. It isn't going to get better. They certainly can't, you know, they've already abandoned, they had abandoned Oscar hopes for the movie because if Kevin Spacey was in it. Now they can save it. And, and he wanted, apparently, what I love about this is the, is the idea that Ridley Scott wanted Christopher Plummer in the first place. Yeah. And they made him a higher, younger actor who had to put on, you know, loads of yeah, makeup and crazy. everything. And you and look at it. Because he's a bigger star. And you right? look and at it, and it's funny because it's like, he looks yeah. kind of silly. Yeah. I mean, he actually kind of looks like Christopher Plummer when you hold the images of them together. So it seems to probably, and, and Plummer's closer in age. He like him in the first place. Yeah. So he gets the actor he wanted in the first place. He shot like eight days, and he can put him back in, and he's going to get his actors, Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg. He's going he's gonna to presumably shoot, this is my guess, he's going to presumably shoot the performance and then put it into the already existing movie that has been edited with a digital composite. Our understanding from what what is being talked about is that a lot of the shots of Spacey as as J. Paul Getty in the film, he's the only one in the frame, which makes it very easy to not net, to partially reshoot certain scenes that are already done and things like that. So this is this is coming down to a very specific technical challenge, which is fascinating because it has to do with like, they're sort of they're remaking key moments in the movie rather than the movie as a whole, and it's not like. They're reshooting, so, you know, all this other stuff. They're, it's 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 very very specific, and it just re- requires a lot of the people who were involved in shooting that stuff the first time to kind of t- extract the details that are necessary to do it all over again. So it'll well, be the point is, is that Ridley Scott is capable of. So I I was hanging out. I had Luca Guadagnino at my at Sneak Previews, and we were hanging out. It was when the news broke. We were talking about this, and he was just like, "Oh my God, you have to go in and do." all the sound over you've got to do the mix over if you open up the movie that's locked and then take it make all of those changes it's not just shooting the performance it's the editing it's the sound mixing it's the score it's all that stuff that you have to open it up and do it all over again and then deliver it in time for a december 22nd 
opening. So it's a it's a it's a huge deal that presumably only Ridley Scott could pull off. And by the way, if he doesn't, they'll push it back. Right. So he's got that flexibility, and he doesn't he's care. Huge. Right. He can do it if he, if he wants to. If he wants to go yeah. this way, he can. And, and like you said, if nothing is lost, if if he doesn't, and it will cost them. It's gonna. It's a forty million dollar movie. So they're gonna add. They're gonna add like. Uh, I don't know, a few million dollars to that. But to, there's another to point to be made here, which is that. But they're saying that they're that they're what they're saying is that this will preserve. What, I mean, what I'm assuming is that this will preserve the value that, that it's worth it to spend the money. Right. On well, this. if you look at the trailer for the movie, there's no question that there's something there. I mean, it made me want to see it. You know, it's a kidnapping story. It's a negotiation story. There, it, it certainly looks great. It seems like there's something there, but this is one of those movies at this time of the year that's sort of like one of the last to screen, and it's really hard to assess whether it's going to be, you know, a game changer in the fall season or, or sort of just adding to the pile of, of movies that are not necessarily strong enough to stand out. As the closing night of AFI, it that would seem to suggest that it has a certain kind of quality going for it, but it's really hard to tell. So the question is, with this new added narrative, does a movie that was sort of in an ambiguous, uh, its fate was sort of ambiguous, now suddenly going to be pushed to the top of the conversation? Because if he pulls it off and the movie's fine, then it's the most dramatic kind of survival story of the year, essentially. Yeah, it's dramatic. And so the other the other movie that got um, kicked to the curb uh, was, <laughs> is the More Louis C.K. Yeah. Now, uh, the, uh, so I, I love you, Daddy. I saw this movie. I love you, Daddy. Played Toronto. It played okay with crowds. Uh, I found it sort of icky, and that was before all this stuff came out. You know, before the well, it's climate change. To be a little icky. It's about. So me. he's addressing. Yes, it is. He's addressing what happens when a father, a doting, you know, rich guy father like him, very much like him, uh, when his gorgeous daughter, who by the way played by uh, Chloe, Grace Chloe Moretz is running around in a bikini, you know, provocatively, a young, beautiful, nubile, uh, young woman, uh, underage woman. Um, and, and basically, uh, she, no, she's just turning, is it just, is she just turning 18? She's in not the 18 movie? yet, and she's a senior in high school. So, it's so she turns 18 at some magical point in the movie, and so she's able, if she wants to, to get together with this lecherous older guy played very well, I might add, by John Malkovich, very much in the Woody Allen mode, and the movie is icky. Well, here, it's, the it's thing is that's interesting about it, I'm not, I mean, I, I saw it in Toronto, it played really, really well. Some people I talked to liked it a lot more than I did. I thought it was... I I liked his his show. I thought his show was interesting. I love Louis C.K. His yeah. his show was sort of, I mean, not just in terms of you know his persona and and, and the fact that he makes a lot of stupid uh, decisions and and sort of the kind of tragicomic element of that was was the essence of the show on one level, but also just from a storytelling standpoint, you never knew what he could, was going to do. He could do, you know, one, you know, single setting episode and then a two-parter with flashbacks to another decade. And he was just very ambitious, very cinematic. And I Love You, Daddy is a continuation of that. It was shot in 35-millimeter black-and-white film. It mixes this kind of old Hollywood scope with the cringe comedy genre in a really effective way, I thought. 
But at the same time, I totally agree that there is nothing more pronounced in this movie than the tendency to make the audience uncomfortable about real-life issues. And even when the movie was at Toronto, there were stories about Louis C.K. masturbating in front of people. So we, the, when the Times does a story like that, it, it changes the conversation. It makes it uh, more extreme. But this but was already But you and I, risky. Eric, we knew, we talked to the people at the orchard. We understood that this was going to be a problem for them, that this was bound to crop up. It was bound to come back. It was bound to rebound. Like you can't, it's like genie in the bottle. You can't put it back in. Well, especially you know, that's these what everybody, days. exactly. That's what everybody's finding out now. They right. used to, I, obviously they all thought they could. They all thought that they could hush or people the up. the other as, thing is, as it's not these just re revelations with David Boyce and and the and the spies that were hired for Harvey Weinstein reveal, and and it all is coming out, and you can't just hide it anymore. But the other thing is, what 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 it used to be like was sort of you could be a a rebel, or you could be perceived as somebody who does things wrong, and still sort of enjoy your capacity as a popular entertainer on the basis of that. Like being a pro, uh, you know, a provocative comedian w was was something else when it wasn't when you didn't have people coming forward, kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying you are actually an immoral person. And so the problem is that I Love You Daddy plays in that ambiguous space that's no longer ambiguous because you know that this guy did this stuff, which, you know, people will continue to debate, you know, the morality of the whole thing, but it just makes it a really tricky business proposition because if you put a movie out like this right now, it would seem like endorsement, and who the hell wants to go see it anyway? So they're not going to put it out at all, which is a pretty dramatic twist for a movie that was acquired for a pretty significant price tag in Toronto. And, you know, I like the people at The Orchard. They've, they've had some successes. Even this year with The Hero, the Sam Elliott film, did pretty well over the summer. Last year with Hunt for the Wilder People, they've gotten Oscar nominations for Cartel Land. So this isn't like a completely clueless company. I think what you're seeing here is more like the perception was this is an edgy comedy that people will get to talking about because they like Louie and because he's a real filmmaker. And there was just something else going on here that was much bigger than all of that. So. Well, the other movie that comes to mind is, uh, and almost feels like the canary in the coal mine, is this is this Birth of a Nation from from last year. I mean, if you look back on it, here was this movie. Everybody jumped all over it. They thought it was going to be a great Oscar contender. It played like gangbusters at Sundance, and then these this this terrible rape uh, old case came came roaring back and completely derailed well, there the was movie also, partly didn't it, I because she died right, right the woman right. died and partly because um, the the filmmaker Nate Parker was so incapable of dealing that, with it that in, was in the a, thing in it's like now I don't up to it at all yeah I, I mean now it's like the very idea of it's not like Louis C.K. can go on an apology tour and then release his movie I mean maybe he can I don't know but it, but to me it seems like the climate now is even more charged than it was then because it was like Nate Parker went so far as to land with this movie a 60 minutes interview and instead of getting a chance to really talk about what the what he wants to talk about with this this slavery film he's like defending himself and not wanting to apologize on national tv i mean he really 
I mean, that, that I think, took it to an even worse extreme. But what you have is a situation where the, where the distributor had made contractual commitments, right. and they were forced to go through with this entire release as though nothing had gone wrong when their lead spokesman was completely off, off the range and couldn't be helpful. So I, I guess um, what we're seeing now is collateral damage from all of these things, and what it means is that you can't afford to be in business with people who have this kind of record. And it's forcing Hollywood at the level of the studios, at the uh, networks, at, at the, all these different companies to examine their sexual harassment policies, uh, to, to give a sexual harassment training uh, to people on set, to uh, let go of people who who can't be trusted to behave and and in a, in a civilized manner and it's a, it's this is a brand new world the thing that really concerns me is and and it's so hard to explain this to people but there are so many different categories of of behavior that we're talking about here there's the sexual predatory behavior sexually predatory behavior serial serial the, and that's this, Kevin Spacey and Harvey are in yeah, that yeah. category. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. And we have repeated have, allegations. Then you have this, a list of allegations, and you know that it's, it's probably even longer yeah, than and you. It's, and it's also crossing a very extreme line. And then you have the Louis stuff, which is, is messed up, and clearly a person who had a very specific problem and should have, I mean, this should have been dealt with a long time ago. And then you have things like, uh, you know, By the uh, way, which did uh, happen a long time ago. Um, so, well, I mean, so, the, the, with all of these things that you're left wondering, as far as we know, it only right. happened a long time ago. And then you have right. stories where it's like, you know, Chris Rock made an inappropriate rape joke at a comedy club the other night, and uh, people were really upset with him about it. But the problem is, in our current culture, you start to worry that if somebody sounds like they're siding with the bad guys or crossing a line verbally their their actions are being conflated with something that's much more extreme and it, i start to i start to worry it's sort of like all of a sudden it's going to be really hard to even express yourself without being completely vilified in ways that were not necessarily you know being thrown around before and, and so, then the other example would be someone like Matt Weiner, who got into some kind of, of thing with one person who worked for him for a long time, who was obviously troubled and upset, and 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 you know with whatever the interaction was. But you don't think of Matt Weiner as I mean I don't know what happened, you know. But you he don't think of him that kind naked or something. I mean, it sounds like it was an inappropriate comment. Did he? For him to say in his statement that he doesn't remember making it doesn't help. Then, you know, a few days ago there was a headline that some former assistant of Jeffrey Tambor said he harassed her or something, and he said, I don't know what she's talking about. And it's just very confusing because it's like, well, did he? Didn't he? We don't know. We don't have enough information. Well, that's why it's up to these. The, the I have to say, I have to commend again and again the New York Times, the New Yorker, and other publications that are doing the due diligence, and and the trades are doing a good job too. Where they and and we've had to do a few stories as well, where you just have to check it out and do the work and make sure that it's not just uh, somebody saying, you know, a he said, she said situation. Yeah.
So, fortunately, we have other things to talk about, not just sexual harassment constantly. That's not the only line of work we're in as journalists. There is a <laughs> film festival going on. Actually, the film festival's going on on both coasts. Uh, Doc NYC kicked off. AF5 Fest kicked off. You went to the premiere for Mudbound, one of a zillion festivals it's played now, or maybe it's eight. Not even sure. But that's, that, that's a movie that keeps getting lifted by film festivals. So, so what was the vibe like for this one? These, the the AFI Fest opening night for Mudbound, according to my reports, I didn't go, Eric. I was home working and well, slaving. That's fine. You already saw the movie, so you get a pass. But what, what's I was, what was not the... at the event, but it play, apparently it played very well. Um, I, uh, I, I, the, the thing about Mudbound is, is, is just that it's a test. It's a test of how a really well-made movie that got picked up by Netflix for $12.5 could be uh, positioned and um, uh, executed in such a way that it will do well with the Oscars. This is the question. It, it does know? seem to be and gaining that traction. It's working. More. Yeah. I think it's working so far, um, and I'm hearing good things from people at the Academy who've seen it. So um, I'm I'm excited by that. I, I think it's great that it doesn't have to be completely dependent on a theatrical release. They're going to show it in like 17 theaters for a week or two uh, at the most, and then uh, and, and then at the same time that it goes out on Netflix. And it's a gorgeous looking movie. I hope people do see it on the big screen. If they've shown it at eight festivals, that was part of their goal. I mean, honestly, I want to go back and watch it. Maybe. Be- in part because it stayed in the conversation more than a lot of us would have assumed it by, by now, but also just because I saw it at Sundance and I'd like to get see it outside of that context because in yeah. many ways it's not, you know, it's not a groundbreaking movie. It's just a very accomplished piece of storytelling, and I'd like to be able to experience it on that basis. Um, in, in it's some... also exciting not to put too fine a point on it. It's exciting to see uh, Dee Reese, uh, you know, who's a woman who's been trying, you know, knocking her head against the industry to get, you know, some some movement. A while, She's a yeah. woman full of ideas, full of energy, just exploding with creativity. If you meet her, you you see that, and and you 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 know, she finally got to really you know spread her wings and fly. Right. And I find that, you know, with a real budget, with, with a, you know, it's not that big. It's like, you know, $11.8 million. But she went to, you know, Hungary and shot tanks and airplanes. And she, she did war. She did, she did peace. She did Mississippi Delta. She, she's, she's really, you know, with a great cast and a, and a great cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, with sweeping vistas and crane shots and, and the whole nine yards. And she really went for it. And, right. um, and, and going by what um, you and other people are reporting, it sounds like with her, Patty Jenkins and Wonder Woman still in the conversation and Lady Bird scoring this really impressive opening weekend and specialty release, this is a, a really extraordinary award season for women directors, more than we've ever seen before. And there's Catherine Bigelow with Detroit, Sophia Coppola with The Beguiled, assuming that comes back into the conversation, which of course they're trying to, to do. For but both, the movie yeah. that may benefit um, along with all of those uh, the movie that may benefit in this climate where you can just imagine that when people see movies and they talk about in their own mind, you know, what is the movie that represents the Academy and the zeitgeist and the way we feel today? It may be that Francis McDormand and 
uh, Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri becomes the movie that is the flashpoint for a lot of feelings about women empowerment and strength and fighting back because that's exactly what she does in the movie against a rape and murder of her daughter. Yeah, I wrote about this a little bit, but I think it's it's pretty interesting because you know, it's not a movie that was conceived in, in this current climate, but it, it certainly embodies the rage of the current moment because McDormand's character is such a badass and she's an older woman, she's a middle-aged woman and and the central figure of this movie in a way that you don't often see and the way that she basically forces all the men in the movie to bend to her will is empowering no matter what your perspective is. So it's kind of interesting how it's sort of like without the zeitgeist component it's still an empowering movie because it was you know, already playing through. in Toronto. It was yeah. already galvanized. It won the audience award in Toronto. There's a reason for a that. And we're seeing a movie, um, seeing a movie in in the context of a of a screening room with other press is not as good as seeing it in a big theater with an audience that's like raging with the character, where it's a cathartic experience. Yeah, where, that's a good point. I wonder what it'll level, be like. It's Donald Trump's America that is also being invoked here. Right. Although, right, if you really that break that down too. the if you break down the demographics, it makes you wonder if McDormand's character was actually a, a Trump supporter herself. You know, it's it's that much is not totally clear. In these are not political people. I mean, it's the movie is, isn't political in that sense. It's more about just. But she's railing against the institutions. Yeah. She's railing against the institutions that don't work, that don't right. function. That it is an activist women. movie in that sense. So, so she, even though she's, in, I mean, it's very smart. They do put it in the context of a regular old American uh, rural Blue situation. Blue collar, all that stuff. So, so yeah, it's not, these aren't rich people in New York who are, who are complaining. And then but, when the but movie the was. Uh, don't work. Yeah, but when the movie was pulled from Fantastic Fest, I thought that was a really notable moment because that was a call made by the filmmaker after Fox briefed him on the situation. And the decision was, well, right now the Alamo Draft Test has this kind of sexual harassment scandal going on, so it would seem hypocritical for us to, to put our movie in the, set, in the thick of that. So clearly they are comfortable getting behind the notion of this being a movie of the moment, and that narrative will probably work in its favor. Though I'm very curious to see how it does this weekend, um, now that it's out. I mean, I know people are excited about it, but it's it's hard to tell, you know, exactly how 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 many, you know, it's not like Lady Bird, you know, it's a, it, it it's not a feel good movie in the most obvious sense. It's it's got more edge to it. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. It's not really clear at this point. There's a shrill, angry woman aspect to it that I thought when I first saw it might not go over, and so I'm uh, I'm 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 interested to see that that the uh, that it's playing differently than I thought. Yeah, I it's love playing, shrill, angry It's playing. Woman. It's playing in a way that that people are are with her. Exactly. I love the idea. You know, Woody Harrelson, I interviewed him, he told me, um, and by the way, that movie's going to do well for McDormand as well as for uh, McDonough for the screenplay and maybe for directing. And then you've got Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, who are amazing. Rockwell especially has a chance for supporting actors. agreed. Agreed. And so, uh, anyway, Woody Harrelson told me that that Frances McDormand channeled uh, John Wayne, and <laughs> she played this part. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, no, she is kind of like a John. She's like late period John Wayne in the sense that she's like bursting into all these places and staring everyone down. And, you know, it's like everybody's intimidated by her. And it only increases as things move along, which is sort of fascinating. In any case, there's still a couple of movies left that we haven't seen. We kept thinking that Spielberg movie was going to show up at AFI. Then we found out it wasn't done yet. Uh, now we know that it's done, and there are screenings starting to be to to get established. There's a trailer out there. You know, this is a legit movie, and it's it's definitely gonna get out there. I guess the question is, when you see what this movie's about, it's really hard to to feel like anything, at least for me, other than I've kind of seen it already. I mean, it. It's sort of, it's Tom Hanks, it's Meryl Streep, it's a feel-good movie about the whole Washington Post-Pentagon Papers story. You know, how much could this possibly shake up the conversation about the fall season? So I ran into Steven Spielberg at this documentary uh, screening for Rebecca Miller's Arthur Miller writer, and he helped to come up, one of his foundations came up with some finishing funds for, for that movie. He's a family friend and, uh, and it's a good, really good documentary. I, I recommend it for any of you who are interested in Death of a Salesman and some of the stories that go behind that great playwright. And, and it's a very intimate uh, look at that, at, at that world. Um, but basically he said, ah, I just finished it. <laughs> this was on Monday and we're putting in the final mix and we're putting in, you know, John Williams score and it'll be done a week from today. And so everybody's been waiting for that movie and now they're going to actually schedule it around November the 20th, Eric, for your, uh, New York film critics. And, uh, and we shall, I'm very anxious to see if they dropped a trailer. I have to say it looks a little old fashioned. Yes to me that's what i was saying in a in a way that could be good or it could be bad it just feels like um, you've seen it already on some level but I mean, we saw all the president's bad. men but yeah. again speaking to the women's issue we have uh meryl streep playing uh a, a role that was so underplayed and underrepresented in all the president's men which is if you ever look at it again a very male oriented movie uh so Catherine graham is is front and center this time that's and and you know that that's fine for what it is. We'll see, but it's not the last one. There's still the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Phantom Thread, and that one I'm told will start screening November 26th or thereabouts. So after the Spielberg movie, and then a bunch of times leading up to both New York Film Critics Circle vote and everything else that's happening. So all of that stuff is starting to become real. It's kind of interesting because it's like we didn't know. Some people were thinking, well, Phantom Thread is a movie that could get pushed into next year because PTA works at its own pace, does its own thing. This is also, if not completely done, pretty damn close to it because they're booking screenings and so forth. So that's definitely going to happen. The question is, is it going to be the kind of movie that's like PTA fans only? It's been a little while since PTA made a movie that wowed everybody beyond that. Uh, and the ch chances are pretty high that it, it will go beyond that, given that it is presumably uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's last performance. But it's just so hard to tell. I mean, these conversations at this point are, are really unpredictable. It is, as we've said before, a weak year for the best actor field, so... He's in the race, even sight unseen, for this performance. But the rest of the movie, it's really hard to tell. I mean, have you heard anything from anyone who's seen even parts of this movie at this point? I've heard that he's he's really good in it. I've heard the woman is really good in it as well, and that it's um, 
it's a good movie, but not, you know, all uh, out of this world. Right. So, so we, it's a, which exactly. And, and so I can't wait to see it, of course. And, um, my guess, my guess is that Gary Oldman is the one to beat and no one's going to beat him. So nothing has changed after all. And we've been watching, um, you know, the Darkest Hour uh, team uh, work the room here in Los Angeles, and and they're, you know, they had their premiere and, and all of that. So they've been working it. Go- Gary Oldman has it, has his Oscar in his sights. Right, exactly. It must feel weird to be that guy walking around town, being like, "Yep, you got that Oscar." <laughs> you know, let me it's put, like, let me put it to you this way: he is smiling. Right. <laughs> well. You can't get too confident. Anything's possible. At never. This point. We'll see. Never. So next week okay, we can talk, talk a bit more about AFI Fest, and um, we'll see how Three Billboards does at the box office, and I'm sure some other crazy news will break that we can talk about then. Until then, have a great weekend. You too.